History Rebbe, Blyweiss lecture number 105. Uh, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism in Europe as we find it in the late 19th century and then the uh, immediate aftermath and response to it in the form of um, Zionism and especially with the idea of secular Zionism. Um, Zionism is a new term. Zion is a, is a name that's synonymous with Yushalayim, Yerakodesh. Uh, the fact that in Jerusalem today, or for the last millennium, there, there's a place called Hart Sion on the southwest um, hill of Yerushalayim is a misleading misnomer. Uh, it, it, it implies that that's Sion as opposed to something else, but Sion is just another word for Yerushalayim. And um, the age-old longing for Eretz Yisrael, based on the fact that we have a mitzvah, all Jews to be here, that's all Jews are like that. Um, this new movement would, would, would be a clearly political, um, you know, a very much a, a reactionary movement based on the events uh, unfolding in the world. And everything we've been saying is certainly backdrop the extreme persecution of the, uh, of the most populous. We did a whole study of the, um, of the, of, of the um, demographic explosion in the 19th century, going from 2.5 million at the beginning of the century to uh, upward of 9 million by the end of the century, and most of it based in Russia. Uh, and the extreme suffering of Russian Jews uh, was very much on everybody's mind. And the question of what's going to be with the Jewish solution, uh, a figure of speech that we, we've been kind of throwing around now. Uh, we, we heard it, we talked about Napoleon's great Sanhedrin. Uh, he was trying to find a solution to the Jewish problem, which is often a euphemism, euphemism for, you know, let's get rid of the Jews. Um, in 1886, uh, worthy of mention, a uh, book is published called La France Juive, the Jewish France, which um, I'll give you a guess, does not paint us in flattering terms. It became the most widely read book in France. The latter is more important than the former insight. I mean, the fact that anti-Semitic book, books are written and published, okay, that's no great chiddush. Um, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't tell me anything that I don't already know. But the fact that it was the most widely read book throughout France, because there's an audience for this stuff. They, they eat it up, they can't get enough of it. They, the, the Jew uh, loathing is in the ether, it's in the air. Um, six years later in 1892, the daily newspaper, La Libre Parole, which is anti-Semitic, as many, most institutions in France were, was, was founded. Um, two years later, there would be a celebrated trial of a, um, milit a life military man dedicated to the French army. Zola? Named? Oh, right. but Zola was the lawyer. Emile Zola was the lawyer. I'm not going to tell the whole Dreyfus story uh, right now. I'm going to stick to the basic um, significance of the story. I'm not going to tell the whole story because it's just another variation of the same old stuff that we've been seeing through history. The What's that? The government itself was anti-Semitic? Yeah. So it was like... It was, it was endemic. It was, it, you could not escape it. And it's significant to France. I'm going I'm to reinforce this. That's the most shocking part of it all that it was in France. Because France was égalité, liberté, fraternité. It was the, the 
symbol in people's minds in the world of the potential enlightenment and emancipation and the opportunity for the Jews to remember the significant um, reach of Napoleon with the Sanhedrin and everything that he stood for indicated to Jews that maybe in fact we could if we acculturate, if we can become like the Goyim, maybe they'll finally accept us and France symbolized all that and that all this should be unfolding in, in France of all places in the end of the 19th century meant that it was all a lie. And we were betrayed. I, you know, according, according to those people who, you know, who, who uh, you know, who, who subscribe to this point of view, the secular Jews, the 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 masculine, the emancipated Jews, they they felt this immense betrayal. Now Dreyfus was so obviously framed. It was it was so set up, and it was the emperor's new clothes were it's patently obvious, and nobody's willing to to, to admit it. Um, that went without saying. It would spark international outra- outrage. Again, the year is 1894. Um, he would be stripped of his rank, sentenced to life in prison on Devil's Island. Right, if the name doesn't do it to you, which is which is really in in it, it, it's off of French Guiana in South America. Really, literally, uh, you know, in, in in seclusion for the rest of his life. Um, in 1895, after his conviction, after his trumped-up conviction, um, Dreyfus would be paraded through the streets of Paris, while the mobs chanted "Death to the Jews." He was the first one, but clearly they had blood in their eyes. Now, it terrified Jews, but very famously, there was a. Um, sophisticated reporter from Austria, from Vienna, covering the affair by the name of? Oh, uh, Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl, who came from the most assimilated family that you could conceive of. Uh, they were Austrian and extended to Germany, in Western Europe, where the Jews had the chance for acculturation, and these particular, this particular family grabbed it. Uh, he was a, a, at, at the time, a not too successful playwright and, um, and also, a, you know, a journalist. He, he, he dabbled in writing and he covered the affair and um, his life changed based on that, based, based on watching the proceedings because clearly it was not just about Dreyfus, it was about French Jewry. And clearly it was not just about French Jewry because if it was happening in France, frankly, it was going to happen anywhere. But was Dreyfus, Dreyfus was a religious man? He was not a religious man. He was somebody who absolutely bought into the uh, the dream of emancipation. Of course, he had a beard, though. Was that? He wasn't even so, him. even so, he was somebody who represented the potential hope of the Jews uh, toward to, to 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 be able to be integrated into the general society, and and the realization that that was not going to happen, and perhaps never would happen, uh, was was a blow to everybody. And so was Jews. Uh, I don't think that's correct. Well, I don't think no, that's right. My, uh, Emil I mean, Zola was not Jewish. I mean, of course, later generations must be because I met somebody who went to my school who was a. That I can't speak to. I don't know anything about that. I'm almost certain that Zola was not Jewish. Wait, what, how is the mindset of an entire generation of people so anti Semitic, like so against the nation for no reason? You know, how did this happen in France suddenly overnight? And the answer is it didn't happen in France suddenly overnight. It really didn't. Uh, France and Germany and there's Austria and Russia and Britain and Spain and it was nothing like it was Asav Asav Sona Esyakov Asav is Europe and 
it's been unremitting throughout history. The Jews have been uh, progressively expelled from France. The Inquisition began in France, if you remember, before it even came to Spain. Uh, the Pope's Jews were located in France. It was, it was a long, sordid history of anti-Semitism in France that Napoleon was just dabbling in the possibility, as it were, that you know, maybe we could you know, change the nature of the Jew and that would make them more amenable, as if that was a solution. But really, what was revealed, what was really unearthed, was nothing had changed. That, that, was, just, that was just a facade, but that the, the ugly truth was that they just hated the Jew. And there was nothing the Jew could do to change that. Now we see that from a Torah perspective in mystical terms. And understand that anti-Semitism is a fulfillment of the club. When a Kaddish Baruch says, you keep my Torah, it'll be good for you. And you don't keep my Torah, and it'll be bad for you. And the nations behave, and I think this idea, I'm going to reinforce this in the 20th century, is it becomes so startling true because the irrationality that informs the anti-Semites, it just doesn't make any sense. And it was, and it was, it was nothing, nothing followed. The enemy of the enemy is my friend. The Jews, in the 1930s we're going to see, helped the British against the Nazis. And the British, in response, persecuted the Jews. I mean, none of it makes sense. And at one point after the other, it's so mind-bogglingly uh, irrational. There's nothing we can do that's right that we, the religious Jew, looks and says, "May Sashem Haisazos." This comes. This this comes from a Kaddish Baruch. How does a secular historian like explain this? Uh, the Jew scapegoated in society. He was a minority, so he's the easy one to pick on. But they don't really get at the heart. I, I, don't, I, don't, I never found those, um, those explanations satisfactory because the, um, the hatred was so seething and irrational in its core and it defied any kind of set of circumstances. There was really nothing that you could do. And I, I quoted to you when we started talking about anti-Semitism uh, right before the Crusades at the beginning of the, uh, of the last millennium, um, we, I quoted Lloyd George from about the 1920s in which he said, the Jew can do nothing right. And then it was a fantastic, very brilliant quote. I, I can paraphrase it roughly that he said, you know, we hate them when they live in our lands, and we hate them when we try to uh, when they try to settle their own land. You know, we hate them when they're rich, that means they're money grubbing and they stole from us, and we hate them when they're poor, that means they're, they're leeches on society. That's the that's the that's the eternally hated Jew. Wait, so but then what changed? Because nowadays anti-Semitism isn't as it is rampant, but it's not as like so that's an interesting, you know, now we're at, at really out of, our, out of our turf right now in, in our discussion, but um, many suspect that the nascent anti-Semitism is all there. There's just a facade. And, and, um, and, and people who wait, expecting us in America for the, you know, the redemption, Jews can finally integrate and so on, they're looking for trouble. And then ultimately, the ace of Sonus Yaakov will emerge. Is the is is the, uh, is the is the sad but uh, but but historically consistent reality. Now um, Herzl and others, but he would become the figurehead and the symbols. That's why I'm focusing on him. Um, he uh, came to the conclusion then that there was no solution. There is no solution insofar as the Jews uh, persist in living in non-Jewish lands. They will, they will never, they will relentlessly pursue us, kill us, persecute us, and um, the only solution then is self-autonomy. 
And um, it was already being discussed, and we spent a long time also in, in talking about the background of the Yeshua Chadash Yishviyashan. You remember that even the religious Jewish world, Ratzvi Hirsch Kalisher, talked about the Jews coming to Eretz Israel long before uh, the Zionist movement was formally um, established. Um, he, he was already writing about the idea of the Jews coming back, forming their own military brigade, having their own, having their own, um, having farming the land, and and becoming ultimately self sufficient, autonomous in in Eretz Yisrael. Um, you catching him up a little bit? Yeah. Which which one? After we went to the Dreyfus, um, the Dreyfus Museum, we were shocked to find it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That what? what, what? Well, well, we were under the impression that Herzl had been like the first person in, in modern history to really advocate for the mass immigration back to Israel. Right. So, That's I, I, just I was, not true. He was just a man who came at a certain time and became an icon. He was outspoken. He'd make, I mean, if you're alive today, I imagine he'd be an excellent used car salesman. You know, he was that kind of a personality traveled around the world, tried to influence people, but um, he was the founder of the state of Israel, as they like to call him, only because he was the guy who happened to be there at the right time in the right place, and they needed an icon, so he, be he became the icon. I, I don't think, even on their terms, he's really that remarkable. You know, I, probably the most, imp if there's anything to be impressed with him, you can, I'm going to say what I want to say about Herzl. Oh, you're saying, you're saying by Har Herzl. Yeah. Yeah, that's really uh, because they need something. They need a figure to rally around. Meaning, if you're a secular Jew and you you have the spark of spirituality in you, and you reject the pantheon of all of our tradition and sages, you will replace it with your own gedolim and invent gedolim. They even use the word gedolim there in Mount Herzl, which I personally love the guy. I had a very I had all kinds of opportunities for stories. So many interesting, famous people are buried there, but they have the you know whatever they call it the the, the area of the gedoli Israel. Which is a term that you hear it and it jars you because then you hear the names, the Doli Yisrael or Levi Eshkol and Golda Meir and Yitzchak Rabin. I'm sorry, but where were the Gedolim? I thought you said they were Gedolim. Well, for them, these are the Gedolim. They, they, they make them into Gedolim because they need, you know, they need to replace what, they, what, they, what, they, what, what is missing in their, uh, in, in their, in their spirituality. Now, <clears throat> Zionism was actually coined by uh, a fellow by the name of Birnbaum, who later became a Balchuva. He, he actually made the term in, the, in 1890. Um, Zionist congresses would meet, let's say most famously, in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland. That's also covered in the museum there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? The whole, 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 whole event the whole thing, with yeah. a lot of pomp and circumstances reflecting. If you saw the pictures and you read the accounts, clearly those Jews had become more goyish than the goyim yeah. in terms of just embracing that whole facade, that whole society. The, uh, but, but really what they were doing, and one of the reasons why um, they, they seemed to, you know, to, to have something and that they would, would be very successful is they were very organized from the get-go. You know, the state of Israel was ready to go already on some level, even the 1920s. They had the infrastructure. They had a they had a whole team, a task, uh, a, a, a group that was tasked with you know you're the medical division, and you guys are involved with the uh, this is the treasury, and these are the, this is the labor union, and all the various elements of society were more or less set in place and ready to go when the state was actually declared, um, which is which for many years now it's starting to change, but for many years the opposite was true of, pa of Palestine. When people were talking over the years about let's you know, liberate Palestine and have them have a state, so 
one reality that was very clear, anybody who knew what was going on here, facts on the ground, is all the Palestinians knew how to do was fight the Jews and kill the Jews, but they were not nowhere near prepared. Let's say you gave them autonomy. They wouldn't know what to do with it. There was no, there was no plan in motion. But the Jews were hyper-organized, hyper-prepared, and that was all established with the Zionist Congresses. Um, they established a platform that would have ultimately turned into the infrastructure for the states. Um, the assumption of the state and one of the major ideological premises is that when you have a, an autonomous Jewish entity, we'll defend ourselves and simultaneously we will be the force to combat anti-Semitism anywhere. Even if Jews remain outside of um, the state, in the world, wherever they should be, we will go and help them. That's the function of this, that's the self-appointed function of the state as, they, as the Zionists saw it, which um, is a wildly ambitious and ironic, interesting ambition. You can understand where they're coming from, and on a certain level, Kolokavod, and it's a nice idea, and how the Bible should be able to protect all Jews everywhere. Of course, that's up to Kantabaruch, not human beings. We, we can only daven uh, for such things. Um, Rev. Arne Feldman makes a fantastic point. He develops it on his, in, his, in his book, Eye of the Storm, on page 61, if you want to look it up. He, um, he points to the irony today that the, if the purpose of the state was to overcome anti-Semitism anywhere, then what's um, happened in the world today is, like Ilan pointed out a few minutes ago, anti-Semitism is no longer PC at least in the Western world. You can't admit to being anti-Semitic in any civilized circles. But anti-Zionism, now you're talking. So the new anti-Semitism really, it really is masked as anti-Zionism. And that is rampant. Everywhere you go in the most sophisticated of social circles, you'll find it. And my former alma mater is a, is a, is a hot ground Berkeley, Berkeley campus. Woo! Not a, not a safe place where to keep it. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so he points to the irony that much of the anti-Semitism in the world is perpetrated because of the Israeli state. So that far from being a defender of Jews wherever they are, the state actually is the cause of persecution and ongoing persecution of Jews wherever they are. I think there's a limit to that argument too because it's all hypothetical. <laughs> you could say, okay, well then let's say, imagine that there wouldn't have been a state, then what, we would have stopped suddenly from being persecuted? No. That's not going to happen either. So it's not really it's not really the cause of anti-Semitism, but nor is it the solution. Nor is it the solution. Is the point that that much I think we we can conclude. Neither the cause nor the solution. And again, I go back to the basic tenets of the Torah. The Torah provides the solution. Make tshuva, everybody, all of us, right? And then Asaf, so as Yaakov, the end of days will come. The, all of the visions of the prophets. And, and, and um, ultimately, that, that will be what will, what will win out. And, and all these other political solutions are simply ter temporary stopgaps. They don't really get to the heart of the problem. <coughs> Yusuf Pasha El-Khalidi. I bet you thought that was the next word coming out of my mouth, right? Uh, Yusuf Pasha El-Khalidi was a really interesting figure. He became mayor recently of Jerusalem under the Turkish regime, under the Ottoman Empire, uh, in about 1898-1899. And this is just within the same time period that there's immense activity and commotion. Zionist Congresses are meeting. Uh, the first official bank of a Jewish body is established. There are hospitals being built. All kinds of things are happening. 
And he's concerned. Yusuf Pasha Al-Khalidi. Anybody heard the name before? A fascinating figure. And he decides to write a letter. There's a, there's a figure who I actually have mentioned and he's come up a few times in history. His name is Rabbi Tzadok Khan, who is sort of an enlightened rabbi. And I don't mean that as a compliment. He's definitely a rabbi who had Torah background, but he, he was very influenced by the Enlightenment. He, among other things, was one of those who, initi- who, was, who was responsible for the way they posed the, the original question of the Heta Mithira to Rav uh, Yitzhak Khan Inspector, and that's not something that anybody should be proud of. But he was somebody who was a mover and shaker in the Jewish world, and Yusuf Pasha El Khalidi, the Arab mayor of Jerusalem, of Ottoman Jerusalem, decided that he'd be a good representative of the Jews to write, and he writes him a letter, and it, the, the whole letter is really worth seeing, but I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote the uh, highlights. He writes about the Jewish people, their history, and their plight. <clears throat> and he says, he believes, I'm quoting, it's completely natural, fine, and even just the idea of Zionism, that the Jews should come back and come into their holy land and uh, establish their own autonomous states. He goes on, who can challenge the rights of the Jews to Palestine? Good Lord, historically, it's really your country. Can you imagine today? He'd be lynched. He's a, he's a, he's a what do they call them? Collaborator. Right? That's what they do. That's, what, that's how they treat you. 1899, he could write such things, I guess. And, and, and um, then he continues in letters. He acknowledges, accepts the, the premise of the Jewish state. And I beg you, as a representative of the Jewish people, to, um, to think otherwise. He says, it cannot happen without force. There's going to be bloodshed. There'll be great wars over this. He said, and, and he said, and this is really interesting. This is one of the most, you know, of all the different predictions of history, this one, this one is uh, prescient. He says, Christian fanatics. Here's a Muslim writing a Jew. It's the Christian fanatics they will do anything to incite Jews and Arabs against each other. It's a great insight because historically we've made this point many times. Muslims and Jews were not exactly best friends. Jews were definitely persecuted under uh, Muslim rule. But nothing compared to the Christians. The Christians were the worst for everybody. And often we were partners in misery against the Christian oppression. Think logically the Crusades, but not just the Crusades. So here he's saying, we're right now not antagonists one to the other. And that was more or less true in 1899. But the Christians will get us to be that way. Um, there are many, especially in right-wing ideo- ideologues, who think, I think this is also an exaggeration, but there's some truth in it, I, who, say, who say the entire Arab-Israeli conflict was, was um, configured by the British. And they actually see the British as worse, a bit worse than the Nazis. Okay, so that's their idea. Well, um, stick with me as we get to the British end of thing. They're not totally off either. That's, that's, you're welcome to it. But that, is that yours or mine? I think that's mine. But maybe not. Mm, it's yours, so I'm wrong. Okay. It's delicious water. Thank you. <clears throat> so hold, we'll, we'll, we'll actually we'll have more to explore. It's yours. Uh, we'll, have more, we'll have more reason to explore that um, soon. But uh, in any case, this is what I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to conclude the letter. Um, Yusuf Pasha then says, The world is vast. There are uninhabited countries where one could perhaps settle millions of poor Jews. We know that was true. We've, we've heard of uh, proposals. Argentina, Siberia, Uganda is coming around the corner. 
as, as a possibility. Um, Rabbi Kahn got the letter, showed it to Theodore Herzl. Theodore Herzl responded to the letter. Um, it, the letter was from March 1st. Herzl responds on the 19th. And the response is fantastic. It's great. It's, 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 it's a non-response. He essentially ignores the substance of the letter. And he says instead, um, he says he, he acknowledges that the existence of the non-Jewish population in Palestine, obviously the Arabs. He said, who would think of sending them away? Wait, wait a minute. Yusuf Ash al-Khalidi never said anything about being sent away. He was saying it's going to turn into bloodshed. It's going to be war. But Herzl misread it. He said, who would think of sending them away? It's their well-being, their individual wealth that we will increase by bringing our own. In other words, those poor backwards third world Arabs, says the classic, you know, like uh, European, Western, Western-centered, assimilated Jew and Christian, for that matter, will come, we'll bring Western ingenuity and know-how. We'll teach our backwards, wayward cousins how it is. They'll love us like good puppy dogs. They'll, they'll be grateful because we increased their material standard of living, was Herzl's true. idea. That was the feeling. That, it's somewhat true, but he felt that would carry the day. And that would sway all the Arabs to be eternally grateful for their higher standard of living. Definitely not. Haraya, the elections next week are coming up. You know, the Arab Israelis increasingly are of two minds. This has been growing for years. They would admit to you, probably most of them, that they enjoy a higher material standard and greater civil rights in Israel. And they are simultaneously committed to the destruction of the state of Israel from the inside out. And how does that sit with them? And it does. It's not logical. The former is simply true, and the latter is what they feel. Uh, indeed, Herzl writes similarly elsewhere in his classic no uh, um, historical fiction based on the future of history. It's a novel on Zionism of what he uh, pictures unfolding. Um, the, the book is called Alt Neuland. Anybody know what was named for Alt Neuland? Literally means old new land. Alt Neuland. They named something after the, the book. The book will be iconic. One of the largest cities in Israel will be named for it. Tel Aviv, which is a name that actually comes from a city in Bavel, but Tel signifying the old, like an archaeological Tel Aviv signifying the new. Tel Aviv was deliberately named with Herzl in mind with Alt Neuland in mind. So in this historical fiction, a novel on Zionism, um, he anticipates what could be done in a generation and probably the most um, interesting thing I think about Herzl is that he did predict a state within 50 years and he was more or less right. Uh, and he spells out what that would be. What he predicted, however, didn't quite work out, not, not as he anticipated. Um, in the States, there's no enmity between Jews and Arabs. Quite the contrary, uh, one of the major characters is a figure by the name of Reshid Bey, who just loves the Jews for improving their economic situation. Uh, and the Jew and the Arab work side by side against all odds to come and forge a bond and to work to having a wonderful, of course, socialist state that's all in the cutting edge of morality in the liberal PC world. I should say it's not all um, a fairy tale. There is a villain in Alt Neuland. The villain is a religious rabbi. He tries to undermine them at every step, but don't worry, he gets his in the end. Herzl makes sure he's duly punished, he loses the election, and he's out. 
Uh, and of course, you know, that's, that's the way. Herzl, I, Herzl was anti-Torah and said, said certain shocking things against the Torah, but I don't, even, I don't even focus on that so much because he was just a part of his time and his, his upbringing. Of course they were anti-Torah. Oh, that was the way you, you were part of the Enlightenment. Everybody in the Enlightenment was anti-Torah. Um, I want to go back to this, his attitude towards the Arabs. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't just Herzl, it was really the attitude of a lot of the early Zionists. The, um, they were all utterly naive. And his response to this incredibly uh, um, ominous letter from the mayor of Jerusalem uh, and, his, and his, say, his, his thinking, this belief that somehow we would, you know, money would cure all wounds and problems uh, was maybe that naivete was essential. Because if you were to have told Jews that, yeah, yeah, come back to your land and you will face a uh, century or more of unremitting hostility from uh, all 22 local Arab nations and all the local population who will strap explosives to their chest and uh, build themselves up on your buses with pregnant women next to them and they will um, pursue you relentlessly. Uh, the nations will despise you and they'll, they'll blow up your embassies and, and your synagogues in Seattle and uh, Buenos, Buenos Aires and they will do all these things to you. You know, if anybody would have known what they were in for in the coming century, who would have come? In a sense, this is Rabbi Beryl Wine's insight on, this, on the subject, he says many things in life were better off naive. He gives an interesting uh, analogy. He says it's, it's like marriage. The, 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 the young, innocent, Kala and the Hassan, they don't even know what the, what's, what's coming. Right, we dance, we celebrate, we make the wedding, and the the, the shemer brachos the best time of their life because who are they in for it? Because it is true, things that are worthwhile are often come through hardship, as we say in the end of the fifth parak of uh, Pirkei Avos, just quoted the other day in Gemara, lufum sara agra, or as our PE teacher always liked to say, no pain, no gain. It's going to come with toil, and um, Eretz Yisrael is going to come with toil, especially as the Gemara brachos says one of the three things that are acquired in. Uh, with Yisuri, with suffering, as Rabbi Shemar Yochai teaches, especially when you don't play by the rules. You're not going to keep Shabbos in Eretz Israel. You're not going to keep the mitzvahs. It's certainly not going to go well. <clears throat> in 1903, the proposal is made um, that Jews can take up a totally useless, undesired plot of land in today's Uganda, and it's theirs as a state. What do they, what do they say? And Herzl said yes. We'll take it. He was a pragmatist at heart. But he ultimately wanted to right? Sure, sure. But if it took Uganda, we'll take Uganda. But we'll, we'll, we'll go there too. It, interesting. Um, interesting. It was. It met with absolutely virulent opposition. It's, it's Palestine or nothing. We're not going to go to Uganda. Even most of the secular uh, forces said, no, no, Palestine is our eternal homeland. Which I claim means is the spark of the you know, Pintel Yid, the, the, the eternal Jew, recognizes its Eretz Israel for the Jews and it's no place else. Um, Herzl dies the next year, in 1904, at the young age of 44. He has cardiac sclerosis. Uh, the plan is defeated the same year. And, um, and, the, and, and, and the, movement, um, the movement continues without him, but he'll be the figurehead. He really. Um, Certainly got it on the map. He went around. He met. We met with uh, heads of states. He met. He met with uh, the cardinal who listened to the pope. Uh, you remember what the pope? What, what he was told by the by, by the cardinal via the pope? 
you people abandoned um, the Savior, Jesus, and we cannot help your people. I, I described that, we talked about that a while ago, we talked about uh, Christianity at first as um, uh, resenting the Jews fundamentally because we didn't follow their plan. And therefore, our continued existence was a threat to them. They're intimidated, they're threatened of the Jews, and that's one of the reasons for this whole replacement theology and this idea that they like to keep the Jews in their place where they belong, where they wouldn't be threatening to us, because from the church's perspective, if the Jews would ever be back in their holy land, autonomous and maybe even thriving and practicing their religion, maybe we're not right, maybe they've been right all along, can't be. They're much, they much prefer to have their, um, the, the wandering Jew who's despised and burned and gassed uh, that would be the image of the Jew that they prefer. I, I, I mentioned that not only when Herzl met with the Pope did he receive this, this response, but do you know that after um, the state was founded in 1948, um, most of the world's nations, most of the world's entities acknowledged the state of Israel. The last entity to even admit that there was such a thing as the state of Israel in 1992 was the Vatican. Because to accept the existence of the state of Israel was effectively uh, rejecting thousands of years of Christian theology that God had rejected the Jews. Wait, what do you mean? No, like, still a lot of countries, don't a lot of Arab countries not recognize Israel? Don't a lot of Arab countries not recognize Israel? The state of Israel. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But they, in other words, but even they um, they talk about it. Uh, they the enemy that it's, it's the Russia that exists. The Vatican, it, they simply pretended uh, it didn't exist. Because to do so was. Awkward for them. How do they do that? Um, now, one of the reasons, one of the forces that sadly fed into the increasing um, support for secular Zionism was the uh, situation in Russia that was becoming more and more hopeless uh, with every passing year. Um, one of the last of the Romanovs, who, who were the czars, the cruel Russian czars, was Tsar Nicholas II. And under his regime, he was uh, vehemently uh, anti-Semitic. There would be even more bloodier pogroms that could be imagined that, e that, that had ever broken out since the term pogrom was coined in the 1820s. Uh, and now in the early 1900s, they break out viciously, um, especially in places like Kishinev, Odessa, and 64 other towns. Uh, the pogroms would last in, a, in, a, in an intense way from 1903 to 1906. Um, 2,000 Jews were murdered directly. Many, other, many others died indirectly as a result, but 2,000 were murdered. Many, many were wounded. Um, now it's interesting, though, and you notice the world is already is changing, is evolving somewhat into a world that we would recognize today. Here, with international journalism now starting to become a fixture of, the, uh, of, of, of world affairs, um, you have none other than the New York Times reporting the Kishinev massacre on May 11, 1903. And in the article, it describes priests, Christian, Russian Orthodox priests, leading the, leading the cry. They're the ones starting the, starting the mobs going. The priests are the ones saying, kill the Jews. And of course, the rabble follows. The Times describes <laughs> Jewish babies being, being, being torn to pieces describes local police standing by doing nothing, which we know in Russia that was what they always, that was the way it always worked. The, the police would always just turn a blind eye and sometimes participate. Uh, the Times reporter concluded the conduct of intelligent Christians was, disgrace, was disgraceful. 
They simply walked around enjoying the frightful sport. Um, this sets off yet another wave of mass immigration of Russian Jews, mostly to the Americas. Um, a very small number would join the second Aliyah, which I'll describe shortly, but uh, since this is a couple, couple of iconic things happen uh, in this period that are all overlapping, I'll describe in 1903 um, a pamphlet, sometimes in the form of a book, started to become circulated by the name of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Russian, we can trace its origins back to the Russian secret police. People have all kinds of theories where it came from. That's probably the most, uh, most accurate theory. They would circulate it. Of course, it served their agenda. If you could demonize the Jew, then you could justify all the pogroms, and then the police had no problem pocketing the, Jewish, uh, the, their, the money that was plundered. Um, what were the protocols? The protocols supposedly were the minutes of meetings that took place annually by a secret group of elders, of Jews, leaders, who secretly plotted to take over and control the entire world. And uh, the book supposedly uh, you know, gives, gives a, fact by, a factual uh, depiction of what was going on. Uh, the book was and remains immensely influential on all kinds of figures. Who read and who, who held by the protocols of Elders of Zion? Henry Ford. Henry Ford. I, I did pause for a moment. I, 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 have, I, have, I have one of those. That's my car. My car is a Fiesta. Um, Henry Ford was, a, was, 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 a, was an open anti-Semite in America when that, such things were still totally acceptable. Of course, Adolf Hitler would be major influ majorly influenced by the book. Um, in later period, Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. Uh, one finds references to the protocols in the 1988 Charter of Hamas, the founding of, of, of the Hamas division of the, uh, in, of, of the Palestinians. Um, it remains a bestseller on Amazon.com. Popular in such unexpected places like Japan. What are they in Japan? What are they? What? We have no connection. I mean, India is still the number one bestseller in, I mean, Mein Kampf is still Mein Kampf in India. In India. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. As we say, there's something mystical about anti-Semitism. Unexplainable. Um, randomly, the historians call the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah, the third Aliyah, not so much because one suddenly stops and the other one starts, but more because they signify a different phenomenon. The first Aliyah was characterized by the Moshe Holtz, by the barons, by the barons' autocratic ways, but it's also his generosity in underwriting these, these, car, these colonies. Um, it's characterized by mostly um, religious Jews, uh, with other exceptions. We haven't gotten to, we haven't talked about Ben Yehudi yet, uh, and other, other forces that broke away, but there's nobody who's ideologically committed uh, uh, um, to another movement that's anti-Torah. And we find that suddenly within 1903 with what they call the Second Aliyah. The Second Aliyah's dates um, are usually given between 1903 and 1914. It comes to a crashing end with World War I. <laughs> Indeed, it's the first large movement of radically anti-Torah Jews to come to Palestine. Uh, remember, this is a toxic mix. 
Um, the Torah des- uh, the Torah is described when people when Jews do transgressions in Palestine. Uh, the Torah va- says that the land vomits those people from its midst. Mit- Rashi comments there. It's in Parshas Achrayimos that um, the land, as it were, is like a person with a delicate digestive tract who, if you feed it the wrong kinds of foods, will have to regurgitate them. And that's like Eretz Yisrael of Averus. So here you have um, a systematic group that are coming to do Averus in the land, but they're idealistic. And if we can try to appreciate them on their own terms, there is something, again, you know, they're, they're, they're in trouble in Olam Haba, but there is something interestingly um, romantic about their idealism and one can understand why they were captivated and others would sign on too. Uh, they were absolutely messianic. They, their ideas that were embodied in their, um, their great philosopher, who they claimed was their gadol, was A.D. Gordon, was the old man of the second, of the, of the, of the second Aliyah, uh, who is himself very influenced by um, Tolstoy and, uh, and, and other, other messianic Christian kinds of writings. Uh, but these Jews had the idea, we're going to come to Palestine and start something totally new, heretofore un, un, uh, in, uh, not experienced in, in, in the world. Um, they, will, they themselves are certainly influenced by the Enlightenment and by persecution. Um, the, I, their idea was that labor and labor Zionism would itself redeem people. The people had been in, cent- in centuries of decline and they're in the yeshiva, in if they, if they worked, they were in mercantile jobs, entrepreneurial jobs that made them what the secular socialist Zionists thought pale and weak and hapless. And they, their image of the ideal Jew was somebody of robust, anybody seen the Rappaport um, sculptures? There's one of the reliefs famously figured at Yad Vashem, the old Yad Vashem. There's another one in Pilate's. Uh, mountain outside of Jerusalem. Anyway, he's known, and there are a few others around the country. He has this style of sculpting. Uh, sculptures are Asr and Halacha, you know that? Three-dimensional renditions of human beings and other things. But he sculpts people as these um, brawny, solid, stolid kind of individuals, muscular, uh, both the men and the women, in, uh, invincible uh, you know, the, chut, the kibbutz chalutznik, that, that's the image. And that was very much, he's sculpting what the secular Zionists are envisioning. This new Jew who's going to be proudly egalitarian, robust, idealistic, sec, uh, socialist. Meaning all, all, everybody has equal rights. Um, he is more revered than the intellectual. The Jews were always an intellectual people, but now this new movement says, no, 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 get your fingernails dirty. That will, that will redeem you and will redeem our people. We're gonna, we've been too removed from the soil, uh, said Gordon and said, said the other ideologues. Um, it was, of course, under, in, within the second Aliyah that the first um, movements, they had different movements about how the Jews would actually live in Eretz Israel and the notion of a, what was first called a kfutzah, was generated and then put into, put into action. The first kfutzah was, well, there was a training school first called um, Kinar on the southern slopes of the Kinaret, but the first kfutzah would later be called the Kibbutz Deganya. Uh, there are two Deganyas, Deganya Aleph, Deganya Beis, um, on the, also on the southern slopes of the, uh, of the uh, Kinaret and the Jordan River, um, where the Jordan River breaks away from the, from the um, Kinaret. Um, 
the community was, there was no private property. And this was, this was the norm in Kibbutzim for, for a period until other movements branched off. Uh, but everybody was equal. Men and women worked. Um, children didn't live with their families. That was inefficient. You had certain people who raised the children, usually women, um, while, while the parents were off doing other things. Um, the, the dining area was common. Uh, of course, there was, no, there was no secular ritual, so they developed their own rituals. Um, to illustrate just how far they went, these were, um, I think, many people would say, almost insane ideologues in terms of how to the extreme they carried their ideology. For example, the first child born in Deganya, the entire kibbutz got to name him. Because he had no relevant, what, just because you're the parents, you think you have rights to the child more than we do, but we're all equal in this. So they all named him Adam, because they're creating a new man. So it's like the birth of the first man, as it were, of, the, of this brave new world, was the way they like to see it. Um, <laughs> interestingly, the humanity, what, what do you have? Uh, it's just that's the name of the, 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 the brave new world. Yeah, yeah, Aldous Huxley, Huxley is thinking about it. Yeah, Gashmius, Yeah, Gashmius, Gashmius. Anyway, this is a different, this, these people were anti-Gashmius. They're very idealistic. Back to the land, simple life, Spartan life. But they were okay with that because, at least in theory, because they were so caught up in the adventure and the ideology of it that they were willing to, to be self-sacrificing. Eventually, interesting, with this child, um, the mother couldn't handle it. She said, yeah, it's all our child, right? You all had all those morning sickness every morning of my pregnancy, and you all, you know, suffered labor pains, and now you're, you know, raising, and now nursing him, and so on. She said, I want to name him after my grandfather, and after six months of debate, um, he became Adam Guido. Guido became the second name. They, they gave in to the mother. Almost everybody who came in the second Aliyah were young. Almost all of them were there without family, without parents. Most of them had actually never farmed before, so they could talk a good game and they could, uh, you know, theoretically believe in their ideals. But the life out in the land was so hard. Uh, Arabs were hostile, and there were attacks and some murders, and they were defenseless. Most of these people did not know how to train themselves. I'll talk about the birth of the first Jewish militia coming also during the second Aliyah. It was called the Shomer, the term to Bar Giora. Um, and they were lonely. And to cap things off, and those of you in Old Pond should know this very well, they had a policy, and you can see this in the museum up in, up in the, it's called Kinaret, I call it Kinar, it's called the Kinaret, which is the first Kfutsa, the first labor school. Uh, um, and, and there they had a sign that said, Daber Ivrit, or Alta Daber. But Ivrit was not yet a fully formed language. It was just emerging. I'll talk about the birth of the, of the modern Hebrew language. And so effectively you had these people who were far removed from their family, from anything that they knew, living these exceedingly difficult life under impossible, impossible situations. You can imagine that when they first planted the first seeds in this rocky, arid culture, um, that they didn't yield uh, results. There, was, there, were, there, were, uh, there were failed harvests the first few years, so these people were hungry and desperate and miserable. And they couldn't even express their, 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 their frustration because they couldn't even speak the language. And there was nobody to go to for counsel except for the old man, Gordon, uh, who offered whatever he could offer, but it was inadequate to the, to the immense needs. And the heat was unbearable. The conditions were, 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 were uh, to say rugged is an understatement. Um, most, what, what many Zionist histories would not tell you, the, the, the sad truth was almost everybody who came in the second Aliyah wound up leaving. They're not the ultimate architects of the state of Israel. They gave up. Some stayed. 
there were a couple famous people who stayed. Uh, uh, David Green came. He changed his name to Ben Gurion. Uh, Mayor Dizengoff came, and others came. Others came, but but most ultimately left Eretz Yisrael. Although there was a phenomenon during this period to leave Eretz Yisrael, you have to imagine this kind of intense ideology was immense peer pressure, and the idea of leaving Eretz Yisrael was effectively jumping ship. You were abandoning the cause, and so many of the people had too much pride to leave Eretz Yisrael, so they took the other option. Uh, there was there was um, a, a disproportionate instance of suicides uh, during this tragic second Aliyah. In one of the suicide notes, it said, we've created an insane asylum here without therapists. Some remained, but, uh, but it was not an easy time, and, and they didn't quite realize their dreams. Um, the, what it, what the original socialist, secularist uh, ideology would give way to a cultural materialism, talk about Brave New World, uh, and to the point that um, this iconic original kibbutz, Diganya, in 2007, voted uh, to privatize. So the kibbutz movement, many perceive, is not defunct. They exist. Many of them are bedroom communities. A couple of them have thriving industries, but that's not exactly the spirit of the, of the kibbutz movement, uh, to have a thriving industry. Some of them, you know, a couple of them, like, you ever eat those tivol? Uh, it's frozen soya patties, so that, those are developed by a kibbutz that I think is one of the well-to-do kibbutzim in the north. In the chocolate milk in the back. Right, right. But, you know, that was not the idea. Um, ultimately, kibbutz life was stifling and not really practical, like most of, this, of the, of the um, offshoots of Marxist ideology, capital, uh, communism and socialism. Um, most of these things did not actually work facts on the ground, and the kibbutz movement is an example of that. Um, that's a bit about the birth of uh, secular socialist Zionism. Um, we will move on with, the, um, with some of the architects of the, the, the upcoming generations in the religious world. Um, some major names that we're going to meet tomorrow, um, among them the Chofetz Chaim and Rav Kook. Not tomorrow, on Sunday. Have a great weekend. Chavis, Chavis, I'll, see you, I'll see you on Chavis.